Okay, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you April 19th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast at thepostmoneyplan.com, where we believe empowerment comes through knowledge. Today, we're going to be dancing around the question of when do working conditions become modern-day slavery? And we'll get into defining slavery, talking about some of the historical context, qualifying conditions in today's world, and examples in today's society, some of the moral implications, and possible solutions. Today, I have Michael joining me on the show. Michael is a doctor in residency, and he has a little bit of experience dealing with treacherous conditions, you could say. So welcome to the show, Michael. Good to be here. All right. So let's start out by defining what we mean by slavery. When you're thinking of slavery, what comes to mind for you? Well, we should also probably qualify that we're two Caucasian males talking about this subject. And as such, we probably need to be careful about the more immediate cultural context of slavery within this country and our rights as such to talk about certain features, to compare, compare certain things to it. Like it's a pretty awful institution. So when, when we say is, is the modern workplace, is it slavery? That's a, I, I think anyone whose ancestors had to suffer that would take offense to it. And I think quite rightly so. But at the same time, we do need to seriously analyze the comparison because there are similar patterns today. We can, there are already people saying that there are problems of inequality and structural violence that are persisting. And despite not having the same institutionalized setup of slavery in, in South America or, or slave trades across human cultures and across time, there's always there's a pattern of resource distribution and inequality. And there's a condition where people, when they feel like their voice isn't heard, when they don't have agency and when they don't have power and they don't have mobility, upwards mobility within their generation, within their lifetime, or freedom to move around and they're just denied professional agency or from reaching their potential. It's a tragic situation, but at the same time, it's not to say that just because you hate your boss or you find lack of casual Fridays oppressive, it isn't to say <laughs> that like by any means your modern work experience compares with someone whose ancestors endured the real deal. And I think that's an important caveat that we want to get right off off the bat with the discussion. That's actually what I'm what I'm thinking of when I'm talking about slavery, thinking in the more traditional sense of it, of uh, slavery being where people are thought of as personal property that can be owned and bought and sold. But basically what I have in mind in defining slavery, talking about property rights laws applying to people, and so people being owned, bought and sold. Yeah. And then or thinking in the context of bonded servitude where people pledge themselves mm-hmm. as collateral for a debt mm-hmm. and having to work to pay off that debt. And, and where you get to the concept of indentured servitude, which we hear stories of that where people wanted to make it to America and they couldn't afford the boat ride to get there. But they said, okay, in order to pay for their boat ride to originally get to America, they said, Okay, I will work for you as a mm-hmm. servant for like seven years if you if you take me on your boat ride to America. Yeah. And so uh, we have had cases of that in America, and then also U.S. itself is, is fraught with traditional slavery and all the kidnappings from Africa, mm-hmm. and that's a very traditional form of slavery. Yeah. But then there's also just the concept of forced labor, where someone isn't necessarily owned or bought or sold as a slave, but they're 
forced either by a government or whoever to conduct work against their will at threat of violence or, or imprisonment. And so you could definitely think of that as slavery as well, in my mind. Yeah, I suppose there's kind of a, a spectrum from just obvious uh, historical context of slavery of being pure sociopolitical dominance of a class or a race or, or a social strata, even individ in just individual cases of just power and some form of coercion whereby you control all of a person's possible options or futures and so by can compel them to work or toil in what whatever manner you see fit. Well I think that's the, that's a big part of it is yeah. when when you take out someone's free choice. Yeah. And when someone no longer has a choice in the matter of working or living mm -hmm. and you're completely at the whim of another that, to me, is where you're really crossing into the definition of slavery. Okay, I think, that's a, I think that's a generative spot to start the discussion then, focusing kind of on that philosophical aspect of what slavery is. Is that to the traditional degree that it is historically recognized, and to perhaps the more insidious form that it is occurring in different places around the world currently, is that the thing that it has in common is just the limitation on individual agency. And you could say that the larger curve of history, if you, and you get in trouble whenever you try to interpret history like this, but you might say, argue that the larger curve of history has been about individual kind of empowerment ever since the Magna Carta in the West limited the rights of, of nobility and, and the king. And you could say ever since then, it's become distributed and it's become slowly democratized and power and the agency has spread until now proletariat has the ability to skip around, travel between towns, travel between cities, travel between jobs, get education, go back to community college, trade school or whatever, and to have these options theoretically open until later. But then you might argue now are there economic forces in play which are decreasing that mobility? And it might not necessarily be a collusion or a conspiracy. It seems like in, in this brave new world, the, the most damaging forces are the ones that are kind of spurned out of our collective ignorance, not necessarily like a collective unconscious. It's almost like we just, yeah, sort of the whole philosophy of, so like if you were to start out with what would ideally be not slavery, what would be the opposite of it would be a great way to start out. So like what would an ideal world, an ideal workplace would be? which would be the exact opposite of slavery that would not be on that spectrum at all. Yeah, I think that's a place to start talking about the opposite of slavery being everyone having free will in their decisions to work and live. Mm -hmm. So if that being one side, the opposite side being not having any choice in, in matters and it's completely dictated to you. Mm -hmm. So I would set those as opposite ends of the spectrum. But free will is in itself a tricky thing to measure. And like when you have the optimal amount of free will, I mean, for different people, it can be different things. And then sometimes you get to a point where too much free will is in itself an unstabilizing thing for a society and even for an individual person can be stymied if they have no direction at all in which to funnel their efforts. If they're completely open and free, they might not do anything productive at all. Or, you know, like a Maharaja back in ancient India, they didn't lounge by the pool, eat grapes, go do whatever they wanted, and then die from boredom at the age of 30. <laughs> so there's an optimal amount of stress that is part of the human condition of being born into a world in which you are not an absolute ruler, and that you're going to have to make sacrifices. So there's 
so saying that like everyone gets their free will all, all the time, it's, it's going to be a balance and a compromise, but there's got to be a way to optimize that. And the way to optimize that is by figuring out how to measure it. What do we, how do we measure free will and, and agency in a workplace? And there are certain ways that we already have that. So the answer has already been derived in certain metrics. Like and one of them is the uh, intergenerational mobility, wealth mobility. That is an index kept by the WHO that measures for different countries the mobility between generations. That is how easy is it for someone to advance their station with regards to their parents within their own lifetime. And the United States is just sadly in the last 50 years has just, I don't want to say plummeted, but they have not risen more, whereas other people have surpassed them in other, other countries, not necessarily in terms of wealth, but in terms of happiness that seems to be derived from this sense of agency that people have within those societies, especially if the Nordic countries countries and then other rising ones as well. But in centuries past, it was almost virtually impossible to change stations and castes relative to today. Even if yeah. we are in the U.S., you're saying we're yeah. backtracking, mm -hmm. looking at the way things used to be a thousand plus years ago, you're typecast from birth. Yeah. If, if, like Untouchable or yeah, you're... Yeah, you're either nobility or you're born a slave, die a slave kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think we've made some progress in that regard. So then the, the question becomes, what are the new agents of social incarceration then? If it's not your skin, if, it, if it's not a marking or a brand on your, your body now, how do we impede human agency and flourishing in this brave new world of ours? And you might say that the financial and economic finances and economics are the new change these days. But it's, that's a slippery slope as well, because there are huge tools that have empowered a lot of people. That's exactly what I would argue, is that yes. I think over time, as humanity has seen more and more economic prosperity, we've had the ability to become more moral and say, like, we don't want to participate in these activities anymore, where, you know, for example, things like child labor or whatever, like we have the luxury of saying we don't want our child children to work, we want them mm -hmm. to learn instead. And in the same way, societies throughout history have used slavery. And even in America, we have a horrible history of slavery. But through time, we have made progress and moved in positive directions away from the most extreme forms of slavery. And so what we're talking about, like moving towards today, is the question of what lingering aspects of slavery do we possibly still have? I mean, we don't have nearly what we started with in the Emancipation Proclamation was a big step for the U.S., and that's like very modern history in the big scheme of things. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads us into talking about examples in society today and whether or not those would qualify as slavery. Mm -hmm. So at the risk of comparing actual treacherous things of true slavery that we've seen in the past and things that are just semi-hardships for people... Could you describe your experience in terms of going through medical residency and some of the conditions in the medical field today? Well, there's a huge upfront cost to be paid, and I think that's the, probably the hardest financial thing these days, and why most doctors are telling their kids not to do medicine. And it's sad to say it's, it's just the business aspect of it is becoming more and more untenable because you have this huge upfront cost for your education and the returns on the primary care side of it aren't adding up in a meaningful way to offset that. So what you're having is you're having young professionals coming out with these huge debts that they're saddled with that they have to pay off. So they have to delay their lives, the start of their lives, lives in essence. And residencies, you know, it's not a, it's not a breeze. It takes a lot of your time. 
and you have to put your life on hold while you're doing that as well. And so you're not paying off that debt. That debt's accruing interest for about three to five years, usually on average, before you're actually starting to contend with the, just the interest itself. So that whole time, and that's not a generous, that's not a, a mortgage that we're talking like, we're talking like a serious amount of interest, like at least 8%, you know, that's crazy. Nothing else is that heavily taxed. And so that's something that they don't put up front on the on the bill, is that by the time that you're actually starting to pay off the interest, not even considering the actual principal, it's already bloomed up to, you know, 500, 600,000. That's like, that's like a little mansion that doesn't that doesn't exist. The whole presumption there is that your skill set that you've acquired is going to help you pay that off. Well, so that kind of brings me to the point of as an outsider, I could potentially see the jump in logic to say that in going down the medical profession route where you could say it's a soft form of modern day slavery in the sense that once you make the decision, so okay, that's a free decision, but once you make the decision to go into the medical profession and you go to medical school and you accrue an enormous amount of debt and then start into residency and it's a long track to get through everything, but it's almost like you cannot change your mind because once you've accrued that kind of debt, there's like no other options you have to pay off that debt except for continuing with that current path, finishing the course and becoming a doctor yeah. so that you can acquire that paycheck that it can then pay off that debt. Yeah, you're definitely you're stuck on that track. It's really hard to jump off. There's not many options you can do apart from being a doctor with a medical degree that can really feasibly do anything to that debt that you've incurred. So it's a great mechanism of keeping people locked in, you know, and making sure that they don't abscond with the uh, huge amount of federal dollars that were spent on their their education, which is what most people's med school educations are, are subsidized with, unless they have parents or physicians who are able to cut the cost on some of it as well. But most people come with a lot of federal investment in them and their education. And so it's it's good that we have a mechanism in place to keep them from bailing. It's stressful for people in that situation. Not that we choose this job because we want to bail on it because we're looking for a cush gig, but it is it is a little more stressful knowing when you're trapped, so to speak. It does take away that that knowledge in the back of your your mind that you have that freedom, perhaps because you you really don't have those options. So there's there's that little added stress onto it. Nobody really talks about it, but it's there nonetheless. That being said, though, it's kind of difficult to compare in the sense of you still have technically have like free choice and decisions that you make. You're, you're not literally oppressed in the way that slaves of the past were just like absolutely under tyrannical rule and had no freedom and no yeah. ownership of things. So it's hard to compare those two. No. But give us a little sense uh, in terms of the working conditions in residency. We're pretty lucky. Like it said, it can vary widely depending on where you go and what and what you do. Because there's a lot of different types of doctors out there, and depending on which one you do, especially a lot of the more procedurally oriented ones, there's a lot of pressure on you. Like if you go into surgery, not only do you have to meet all these metrics, get all these numbers, a certain number of surgeries, a certain number of procedures, you have to do well, you have to be rated well, you have to do clinic on top of it, then you have to do rounding on inpatient, and you have to do research, a certain amount of research numbers, you have to make all these numbers that they throw at you, all these hurdles. And all of them, they all take time. And you only have a limited number of time, a number of seconds in your life. And you feel, especially as you're giving up the, the youngest part of your life, where usually most people spend that part of their life investing in their community and their families to help them through their later years, you're kind of sacrificing that. You're burning that part of the candle 
and hoping that there's going to be an economic payoff at the end of it. At least that's how our capitalistic interpretation of, of that sacrifice is supposed to play out. But we're fortunate. We're doing more forgiving specialty, at least, um, but still it can be very difficult. Um, and what's that? We're doing family medicine. And so we, you know, we have inpatient obligations and we have clinical obligations and we, and we do research as well, but it's, we definitely don't have to make as many procedural requirements or we don't, and we don't have to log OR time as well. So that, that helps a lot. And it's just three years. It's not five. So we, we definitely feel very grateful to be where we're at. But at the same time, we do have a very good appreciation for the people who, who go through the, the more intense versions of residency, which you're supposed to cap out at just 80 hours a week. But I would estimate that there are some of these people in the, the more intense ones, not necessarily at our institution, but other places that are rotated where that is definitely not the case. And if we were to honestly enforce that, I, I wonder what those actual numbers would reflect like nationally. I wonder how much has actually changed when it comes to resident hours. I'm sure the cap, what the cap has done is it has enforced it on the whole, but I don't think that the numbers are perfect. People will round here and there so that they don't get in trouble, so that the program doesn't get in trouble. And I, like I can imagine, like we, we brush up against it and we're not even in the most of intense types of residencies. So I can only imagine what people who are having to do things like, you know, surgery or neurosurgery are, are having to do. Yeah. Well, leaving the medical field, an example I could give in my life, we both grew up in Saudi Arabia on a compound and there were plenty of street workers and gardeners and what they considered menial task jobs where there were immigrants that were brought in from the Far East and different countries and they were treated extremely poorly. They were paid absolutely dirt wages and that's not the actual worst part of it. I think the bad part to me was that when they were brought into the country, their passports were taken. That is the point in the transaction to me that then becomes slavery, where their passport is taken so that then they lose their rights to the point where if they don't like their working conditions or they're treated too horribly or whatever, they can't leave the country and return home because their passport is held by their employer mm -hmm. and they're completely at the whim of their employer. And to me, that is where you cross the line into slavery. And that was going on when I was a kid, and I'm sure it's going on just the same today. Yeah. And hopefully, conditions have improved. And you hear the stories of constructing the World Cup stadiums in Qatar, that workers are dying of heat stroke and, and working in the overly hot conditions, and they're probably not getting enough water and things like that. But when it comes to the point of people's passports being taken so that they no longer have the ability to leave the company and leave the country, that, to me, is modern-day slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that pretty tightly fits the bill, I think. Yeah, they literally have their agency taken from them. I mean, you can say that a person never, you can take two extreme philosophical stances on it. You can say that a person never has their free will deprived from them, and then you can say that a person is never free to make choices. Like, for example, on, on the, the former, you can say, you can see that that person, even though that their passport is locked, they're not, the passport's a piece of paper, they can run away in the night, they can try and take extreme measures, that'll be very difficult, they can go over barbed wire fences, smuggle themselves away into a ship and, and go, you know, they're not trapped 
But that is obviously the laws of the state are not assisting them in that in any way and in fact impeding them in large portions of it. So you could say if the apparatus of the state is against you and then that... And the legal system. And the legal system is against you, then that is, I think, the key qualifier is you have to say there's a state and legal contribution to the system as, as it is set up that is part of slavery. That's inherent to slavery. Because then the opposite of that is where you say a person never really has free will because you're you're a slave to your impulses. You're a slave to your, your animal nature. Until you die, you're never really free because you're having to breathe <laughs> oxygen. You're having to fulfill baser, baser impulses and that. And even then when you I have, have to breathe oxygen against my will? <laughs> Ridiculous. I'm holding, <laughs> I'm holding my breath until I achieve enlightenment. But even then, when you have all your baser impulses fulfilled, everything on top of that is an abstraction. Ego and, and status are, are the next big things that we attain after our baser impulses are fulfilled. And that's just a, a mammalian primate drive. And then everything is kind of abstractions off of that. And so you say, well, you need to get into a philosophical spiral. When are you truly free? You know, is it a state of insanity or what are you, what are you looking for there? So freedom in this case, I think we got to limit ourselves to speaking into strictly social terms and, and constructs, just like, like we said, the state and the law. If the state and the law is, if the construct yeah, is exactly. empowered by the state and the law, and that's what is impeding or assisting in your agency, then that is slavery. Well, yeah. when we're talking about in the context of yeah. macroeconomics, I mean, we're, so, we're, we're thinking about the social implications yeah. uh, of slavery and the moral implications. And I think most people can agree that we want everyone to have the feeling of, of choice in the actions that they take in their labor. Yeah. You can argue that nobody, nobody is keeping me here. Nobody is keeping me in this job. Nobody is keeping me in this country. And I'm free to go and do whatever I want. But that quickly falls apart just as like as the poor imported worker in Saudi is free to discover on his own is that if he chooses to leave the camp, leave his employer and try to smuggle himself out, he runs across the agents of the police state and it's not going to be pleasant for him. There's either going to be... No, exactly. Yeah. And same thing, I what I'm going to run against if I decide I'm not going to go to work tomorrow, <laughs> um, I'll quickly discover that I am no longer needed at that work. And as you know, that's... I think most people would think that that's an appropriate response if you were running a, a tight ship and everybody is needed to make it run and there's high stakes involved as you want reliable people on that. That's good to have that system in place. But at the, at the same time, if somebody's figuring out that they're not the best suited and they don't have the option, say, for that residency or for that field, it can be a very daunting prospect to go back in because what that means is you have to re-enter a matching process. You have to spend another exorbitant amount of money traveling around the interview, the, the country doing at least 10 or 12, sometimes 15 interviews in order to, to match again. You have to get letters, you have to get referrals, you have to get all this stuff in order to go through the match process again when the match is inherently unpredictable because you just submit all your choices and then you pray that you were ranked highly as well. It's like a really perverse dating website <laughs> that just gambles with your life and your career and your money. So you can say, yeah, you're free to go pursue those options, but at the same time, it's such an unpleasant alternative. It would be, I don't want to say it's akin on the same level as, you know, is that poor Bengali worker contemplating getting lashed in the public square or perhaps losing limbs. No, I wouldn't say that's even not, close. Not nearly comparable. The same, but at the same time, if you have even a modicum of foresight, you are very strongly compelled to stay the course. And, you know, in some situations, that's 
that's good. Like I said, if you're resource strapped to society and there, and you have a, like I said, you want to run a tight ship and their stakes are high. That's people's life, life and death, morbidity situations as you want steady hands on deck. But, or let's take the example of in communist countries in the past where the farmers or like had, had their farms and then the government comes in and says, you have to give us your crops and then you can't have your own crops. You have to keep producing them for the state. So basically their free, free choice has gone out the window and. Yeah. They eliminated interpersonal agency. I think interpersonal agency is a great thing. It's one of those things that we inherently associate with freedom, you know, as children. And it's just this, this innate sense of freedom and justice that we have as, I don't know, it seems to be almost programmed. I don't want to use that word like you invoke the blank slate, but it seems like having that, that ability to choose for yourself where the direction of your life is, is going to be and how to, and how to steer that and to have the resources available to empower that is something that is great for us, obviously, but it's also enriched society throughout the years. From the Middle Ages, from the feudal estates where you had a very limited small nobility, like the, the 0.00001%, and then the rest of the people who just toiled, you know, the serfs on, on the land. Right. We've markedly sp- you know, swung that pendulum the other way. And you can say, well, it's because we're wealthy now that we're able to empower those other people. But my contention, I think the contention of a lot of it people who've specialized in economics is that it's, it's the opposite is because those people are mobilized, those resources are mobilized that we have become wealthier. And what, what is, how do you measure wealth in society anyway? It's, it's resource mobility and accessibility and our most valuable resources. And we keep forgetting this time and again, are our human resources. And when you empower your human resources to be diverse, to be mobile, well, I think having having knowledge yeah. goes a long way because if you don't know any better, you don't realize that you're oppressed or or that there's other options. Yeah, and the possibility that's out there. Yeah, so that's the thing in a, in a resource starved system is is feudalism or anarchy is the way that without education it's feudalism or anarchy. Look at the power vacuums that we've created when we've tried to disrupt oppressive regimes, and without education. Feudalism collapses into anarchy, ultimately, it seems to be the case. So you can have that that tight resource base where the control is very limited and the agency is only in the hands of a few. But in order to make that an easy transition, it seems to be it has to be a slow one because you've got to disperse that education first. Well, that kind of leads us in. Let's wrap it up with where do you think society should take things in terms of enabling, empowering people and, and making them feel like they have free choice in things and are not forcibly, tyrannically pushed into things and, and that things are a free choice in terms of labor. I feel like this whole conversation could be like an intro to a book that dives into it really deeply and well. <laughs> and it would start ultimately like, you know, with looking at the, the history of slavery and going back to the earliest reported instances of it in Egypt and Middle East and Mesopotamia, the rise of civilization, the rise of humanity as well. And there's always been a social system set up to limit the agency of others supposedly at the empowerment of a few. And what we've seen is in the course of history is, is the opposite of that, against that intuition that by dominating many that a few would, would greatly benefit from that, is we've seen by empowering people and distributing tools and dispersing fame, dispersing wealth, dispersing influence, and YouTube and Google, all these great collaborating platforms have enabled some really great content and thoughts to emerge 
and it's been really exciting. And I would imagine if that, and I'm cautious when I interpret any direction in history, but if that trend were to continue, I would say that we have to address our understanding of finances and our current financial tools because they've gone off the rails in some directions. I would definitely agree. And that's where I don't even have the expertise to talk, to, to talk about that. But uh, just just hitting on like the roots of what the history of usury is as it relates to you know, the, in, the, in like the biblical sense and then the modern definitely. sense. Um, because if somebody is taking out rates, these massive rates, and then you know the, the time, by the time they're going to be able to pay it, it's the, the price is going to be a million dollars. What are they in the current financial, social, legal structure? What are their options at that point? Yeah, yeah. Because if you're looking at a modern life in, in this country where you're expected in order to have a certain uh, a level of professional accessibility, you've got to have a phone, you've got to have a car, you've got to have this, 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 and this in order to be socially and professionally linked in, then there's a high operating cost. In order to hit the ground running and get at that cost, often you've got to have parents chipping in at the front. Who does that exclude? That excludes everyone below, I'd say, almost you know a sixty or $80,000 income. They can't afford to lease out, you know, to mortgage their house again for the, their kids' education, especially if it's a high uncertainty, you know. And so you're crippling a whole segment of the population society who's getting educated, who are pouring money into their education. Like, why invest more money in education? This is a horrible and cynical thing to say. But why invest more money in education if you're going to hamstring the people who you've just been put, putting that money into at the point where they're about to leap off for college or professional school? Yeah. So it's a blind investment for us and it's stupid for us. And it's an awful thing to say, but we, we shouldn't invest if we're not prepared to collect. But it's really, I don't mean that to say that we should stop doing that. I mean, it's a wake-up call to the people who are arguing quickly about education is we shouldn't back out. We should go all in. That's what we should do. Well, I think it's pretty clear with the post-money plan that the slogan that I'm using, empowerment through knowledge, that I think people having knowledge in general and then specifically on personal finance and economics mm -hmm. is empowering and, in effect, limiting slavery and kind of as a follow-on to that, debt being an oppressive limiting factor in your decision-making. The more debt you have, the more it's restricting your choice in labor. So in terms of like going forward, I think if as a society we can try to avoid consumer debt as much as possible, that will be one thing that can reduce the amount of modern-day quote-unquote slavery that we yeah. have. The more and more people we help avoid going into that in the first place, mm -hmm. the less me, for example, I had the ability to quit my job and say, I'm going to start this company because I didn't have a huge loan with a bank, which was accruing interest. Yeah. And if I had that, I might say, oh, I can't take this risk. I can't go out there and do this. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of other people that are in that boat and say, I cannot quit this job because I can't take that risk because I have to make these car payments and this mortgage payment and these student loan payments. So I'm saying yeah. the more and more in the future that we can keep people out of consumer debt, that it can empower people and, and limit the extent of modern day slavery that we have yeah. in our society. That's one thing I definitely didn't appreciate when I took out my med school loans is I knew I was going to be sacrificing my 20s. Not really fair to say sacrificing, but I was going to be dedicating a large portion of my, my 20s to studying. Uh, a lot of other people were getting to invest their lives in other ways, doing different experiences and stuff. So I knew I was going to be making that trade, but I didn't realize what it would be is also trading off a lot of part of my future mobility. That's something that I should have really considered more.
It's tricky, though, because there's decisions you make in life at an early age, which don't feel like an early age when you're there, but mm -hmm. they are. And you don't fully fathom the total implications of them, even though you think that you do. Mm -hmm. You know, the decision on where to go to college, you think, oh, yeah, sure, like, I want to go here. But you don't really, truly fathom all the implications from that in terms of what that's going to mean for your future until much later after the fact. But that happens a lot in life, and we mm -hmm. learn from experience and, and wish that you knew things in retrospect, but it's not really how things work. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, just pretty much, again, to summarize it, I think the more knowledge people have, the more planning people make and avoiding getting further into debt than you are. Having less debt in the future than you have today is a way to make progress towards moving more towards freedom and less towards slavery, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, yeah, in, in that broad scheme of it, you're just saying wealth is freedom, poverty is slavery. And being in debt is, is just an impoverished form of future options, whereas being the reverse of debt is having a wealth of future options. But and that's not the way that it's taught or commonly conceptualized. But I think that's a really profound kind of... And, and wealth, not just financially, but also yeah. in, in knowledge and relationships. Wealth in, in all forms, not just monetary. Yeah. Well, monetary is just symptomatic wealth. People often make that confusion. They, they see it and interpret that the, the bling is the real thing. But it's that's just the downstream manifestation of making those, those right choices, pursuing knowledge. Yeah. Well... Let's go ahead and cut it off there. Yep. So thanks for joining us and catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. Mm -hmm.